2: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
0: Where are you going, darling? Out. Will you pick up some produce on your way home? For what? I'd like to bake a blueberry pie. Why don't you go out and fetch the berries?
1: I have to clean today. I'd like to finish by sunset.
0: (sighs) All right. You got a list?
1: Right here. Might as well pick up some cabbage while you're there. We have little left. So cold.
2: One day in 1969, Carl Valdemar Gilstrom, one of the original suspects in a triple homicide in Finland, went out to Lake Bodum.
1: He never left.
2: That's right. He committed suicide by drowning.
1: Gilstrom had first garnered attention because he was known throughout the area as a curmudgeon.
2: It is said he was such an angry person that he even threw rocks at passing children.
1: It's believed he was a miserable man and that witnessing happiness, especially in the hearts of children, made him even more miserable.
2: So he commonly lashed out.
1: He lived very close to the murder site and ran a kiosk in the Oita Recreation Area.
2: And there is a story supposedly reported by a neighbor that Gilstrom was seen at a well a few days after the murders.
1: Because of this story, people have theorized that he could have been hiding the murder weapons inside the well.
2: But this was never verified by authorities. And may simply be hearsay. He was the first suspect that police pursued, however.
1: But his wife provided an alibi for his whereabouts on the morning of the murder, and this cleared him of suspicion.
2: And that was when we last heard of him.
1: Until 1969. That was when he killed himself in the very lake where three young teenagers were murdered, back in 1960.
2: 15 year old Anya Tuliki Mackie and 18 year old Seppo Antero Boysman were found brutally stabbed and bludgeoned inside a tent in the woods. 15 year old Myla Irmeli Bjorkland was found dead on top of the tent. She was naked from the waist down and stabbed many more times than the other two victims.
1: The fourth member of their group, Nils Wilhelm Gustason, was attacked and incurred multiple
2: stab wounds. But he survived.
1: Officers that reported to the scene found him semi-conscious when they arrived.
2: But he was pretty dazed and couldn't recall anything at the time.
1: Later, he would undergo hypnosis, and that's when brand new details of the suspect would
2: emerge. But would they lead to any real progress?
1: Or simply add to the mystery of Finland's most terrifying whodunit.
2: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
1: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our second episode of The Lake Bodom Murders.
2: If you like the show, we would immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
2: When we left off last week, we were discussing a man who became a prominent suspect due to some strange evidence.
1: This individual was Hans Assmann. He was 37 years old at the time of the murder.
2: If you'll recall, he became a suspect because he entered a hospital in a frenzied state with dirt under his fingernails and blood on his clothes just one day after the teen's murders.
1: Then, witness testimony emerged that described a suspect leaving the teenager's campsite the morning of the murder.
2: The man was described as having long blonde hair.
1: Hans was a man with long blonde hair, well, before he got a haircut,
2: that is. And the timing of that haircut is very significant.
1: Because he only had it cut immediately after news reports described a suspect with long blonde hair.
2: Very suspicious. Yep. And we can't forget that Hans was linked to another unsolved murder seven years earlier.
1: That of Auli Sari, a 17-year-old Finnish girl.
2: We also can't forget the possibility that Hans was a spy for the KGB
1: which makes this all the more complicated
2: and interesting
1: out of all of this information i feel like the cutting of his hair is the most incriminating
2: yes and no maybe hans was paranoid maybe he thought his long hair made him look too much like the suspect and maybe he was afraid that he would be pinpointed because of his past either way it was a strange move yes but here's where the case takes a disappointing turn authorities question hans girlfriend who provided what was considered a solid alibi for his whereabouts during the time of the murder.
1: Unfortunately, we don't have the details of that alibi, but we do know it was enough for authorities to stop pursuing him.
2: He was no longer considered a viable suspect.
1: To me, that isn't enough. It seems too convenient that investigators just crossed him off the list.
2: Well, maybe it was. One theory as to why he was eliminated as a suspect was because of his political affiliations. Oh, you mean his link to the KGB. That's right.
1: So you're saying perhaps he was protected, even shielded from the law because of this?
2: That may have been the reason why he was removed from the suspect list. The KGB was still active in Finland as Finnish-Soviet relations remained tense. Mm. That adds a whole nother layer if it's true. But here's another strange piece of the puzzle. During a funeral service for one of the victims, a photograph was taken of the crowd.
1: In the center of the photograph is a man. No one who knew the victims could identify him.
2: Shortly after the crime, before any funerals took place, sole survivor Nils Gustafson recalled in detail a description of the killer, but he could only do this under hypnosis. An artist
1: crafted a composite sketch from the description.
2: In my opinion, the sketch looks strikingly similar to the mystery man captured in the photo from the funeral. But does the sketch and the photograph resemble Hans? I think they do. Let's describe Hans' physical
1: characteristics. Then we can discuss the sketch, and finally the photo.
2: Hans's most distinguishing characteristics, based on a photo of him, are his big, penetrating eyes, the crinkles in his forehead, his slicked back, blonde hair, and his rather large ears and nose.
1: The composite sketch that was created after Gustafson's description of the killer features a picture of a man with a very angular face and big lips. Those two details differ somewhat from Hans, but the other
2: details don't. Slicked back, blonde hair, large nose and ears, minor crinkles in the forehead, and big penetrating eyes.
1: I have to say the similarities are striking. I agree. Now this photo that we've referred to, the one of a crowd at the victim's funeral, features a strange man amidst the sea of mourners.
2: Obviously our listeners can't see the photo at the moment, but I would venture to say the man resembles both a photo of Hans and the composite sketch of the killer.
1: Could these three depictions all be of the same person? Hans Assmann.
2: Or are we so desperate for answers that our minds perceive similarities when really there are none?
1: Ooh, a tough question
2: to answer. So, thanks to his solid alibi, Hans was eliminated from the fold for the time being. Was Carl Gilstrom ever completely disregarded as a suspect?
1: Actually, it was after his death that he became more of a suspect.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
0: At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora. Curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at sephora.com.
1: And now... Let's continue our story.
2: Years after his death, more suspicion arose around Carl Gilstrom. You mean because of his wife's new testimony? That's right. Mrs. Gilstrom, while on her deathbed, confessed that her husband had admitted to the murder of the three teenagers at Lake Bodum.
0: I was afraid of him. He could get so angry. He came home. He threatened to kill me if I told the police that he hadn't been at home that night.
2: So she completely recanted the original alibi she had given to authorities? Yep. So was Gilstrom actually guilty? Or did he think he would be an easy suspect considering his reputation, and so he proactively had his wife lie for him? And then she
1: felt guilty that she lied, so she revealed that Gilstrom had told her to.
2: That is a possibility in my opinion.
1: Well, regardless of the answer, he was an easy suspect
2: but the waters of this case quieted eventually.
1: There was no real way to confirm Gilstrom's wife's claims. So after Gilstrom and Hans were cleared, there were no other real suspects for decades.
2: Well, despite the fact that Hans wasn't considered a suspect by authorities, Many of those who knew of the case still believed Hans was the actual perpetrator.
1: And he did remain the front runner
2: for a long time. That was until 2004, after DNA technology had been invented.
1: Yeah, this changed everything.
2: For those not familiar with the history of DNA profiling, here is a quick backstory.
1: DNA testing began in 1985 by British geneticist and Professor Alec Jeffries. It was initially used to determine paternity, but in 1986, Jeffries used it for the first time in a criminal investigation.
2: The crime took place in the small town of Narborough in Leicestershire, England. The DNA evidence led to the conviction of Colin Pitchfork, who had committed two rapes and murders.
1: One year later, DNA testing was used in the United States in a criminal case and deemed admissible in court for the conviction of Florida rapist Tommy Lee Andrews.
2: The examination of skin, hair, blood, and other bodily fluids left at a crime scene is a vital piece of the investigative puzzle and can identify a perpetrator with over 99% accuracy.
1: And on the flip side, it can successfully exonerate innocent individuals.
2: Over the years, advances in DNA testing technology have allowed scientists to analyze smaller and smaller amounts of DNA.
1: So with the advent of DNA profiling, investigators all over the world became increasingly hopeful that new evidence could solve old cold
2: cases. And this was definitely the belief with the Lake Bodum murders.
0: We still have the evidence that was collected. There are traces of blood and probably much more. Exactly. This case is important to the people of Espoo. To the people of Espo? This case is important to everyone in Finland. This is the case parents pass down to their children, that teachers warn students of, that tourists hear through word of mouth. We have to solve this case. Yes, but where do we start? With the blood on the shoes. The killer wore them when he committed the murders. We have to find something.
1: In 2004, the Finnish National Bureau of Investigation decided to reopen the case.
2: Investigators now felt confident they could use DNA profiling to identify their killer.
1: They claimed that new blood evidence found on a pair of shoes from the crime scene was enough to revive the
2: investigation. Because of advances in technology, they would be able to examine the bloodstains found on the tent as well. When the case reopened, investigators went after a brand new suspect. 44 years after the crime took place.
0: Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson, you were under arrest for suspicion of murder of Anya Tuliki Tulikimaki, Myla Ermeli Bjorklund, and Seppo Wintero Boisman.
2: Nils Gustafsson was the only person that night who survived.
1: Over four decades later, Nils must have been utterly
2: shocked that this case had suddenly risen from the grave. I would imagine so, not to mention that he was the one now suspected of the murders. At the time of his arrest,
1: Nils was 62 years old.
2: And a semi-retired bus driver and mechanic with a wife and grown kids.
1: I imagine he thought he had put all of this behind him.
2: But sadly, his ordeal was just getting started.
1: His trial began on August 4th. 2005.
2: Had investigators found DNA evidence that pointed to Gustafson as the killer?
1: No, but they went after him because they had a new theory they believed would be enough.
2: That seems a little murky.
1: Well, it was. The police didn't divulge much. They just went after Gustafson with gusto.
2: Apparently, investigators had been eyeing him for some time.
1: During the trial, Gustafson claims that due to his head injuries, he could not remember a thing about the crime.
2: He could recall what happened before and after, but not during.
1: As we mentioned before, Nils did undergo hypnosis shortly after he survived the crime.
2: And he was able to give details of the man he remembers seeing in the woods.
1: But he was not able to access this information while he was awake. He could only do it under hypnosis
2: it's important to mention that the use of hypnosis to unlock past memories has been proven highly unreliable.
1: A recent study done by Joseph Green of Ohio State University showed that, quote, hypnosis can't help you recover lost memories. In fact, it tends to make people more confident in false memories.
2: But in the 1970s, several police departments hired hypnotists to help enhance eyewitness testimonies for various cases.
1: The results of the study also showed that, quote, hypnosis increased the amount of information recalled, but the information was not always accurate.
2: Interesting. Despite the description he gave under hypnosis, Gustafson could give no other details of that horrific day.
1: And he therefore couldn't contribute any real testimony during the trial.
2: The prosecution, on the other hand, had its argument primed and ready.
1: And they were calling for the death sentence on
2: three counts of murder. The prosecutor claimed that on the night of June 4th, 1960, after a fair amount of drinking, Nils Gustafson got angry and in a jealous rage engaged in an argument with his friend Seppo, which turned into violence and eventually murder.
1: I'm sure that the townspeople of Espo had a lot to say about that. Quite an eventful trial, isn't it? I'll say. Do you believe what the prosecution is suggesting?
0: I do. Really? Yes. As I see it, it's easy for a night of drinking between friends and lovers to take a bad turn. How do you mean? Well, I'll tell you what I think happened. It was a night of teenage debauchery. Drinking, sex, two 15-year-old girls, two 18-year-old boys. Come on, you were young once. I was. As the night went on, the drinking increased. Maybe a look of flirtation passed between two people. Say, Nils' girlfriend and his best friend. Maybe Nils witnessed it. Okay... So maybe Nils couldn't handle his liquor like the prosecutor mentioned. He got angry and seeing only Red started attacking Seppo. He then killed his girlfriend, Mila. He bludgeoned her in the head and then stabbed her repeatedly. When the other two at the scene tried to stop him, Gustafsson lashed out at them also, stabbing and bludgeoning them as he had Myla. This sounds extreme. But think about it. It's like the prosecutor said, Mila had so many more wounds than the other two. Which would suggest Nils had the most anger towards her. The girl who was supposed to be loving and faithful to him.
1: Young love can drive a person mad. Can't it? So it was a very personal motive in this case.
0: Yeah. Doesn't that make more sense than some random stranger in the woods? I don't know. Think about it.
1: A lot of these theories were presented in the courtroom.
2: I'm sorry, but this seems like a stretch, doesn't it? Jealousy mixed with alcohol, and that accounts for three heinous murders supposedly committed by one teenage boy?
1: Well, I agree that it seems extreme, but just to play devil's advocate, it's an interesting position for the prosecution to take, considering Finland's reputation when it comes to the consumption of alcohol.
2: Mm, it's relation to crime, you mean?
1: Yes. In a Finnish study, published in 2017, author Mika Varela cited historical studies done by Veli Verko.
2: Verko proposed the idea of violence, coupled with drinking, specifically when it comes to crime within Finland.
1: Vorella sums up Verko's theory, stating, Finns have an aptitude to behave irrationally under the influence.
2: He goes on to say, quote, The Finnish character has a tendency for disproportionate violent outbursts when encountering actual or imaginary insults.
1: So the prosecution against Gustafsson really tapped into these two elements?
2: Yes, the effect of alcohol on the Finnish people and the tendency for exaggerated reactions to supposed insults, real or imagined.
1: The article bases this theory on the cultural origins of the Finnish people. When settlers originally came to Finland during medieval times, They rarely interacted with each other.
2: And because of this, they didn't develop skills of communication.
1: So when these inhabitants faced conflict that challenged their honor, by a verbal insult for example, they immediately chose physical violence over discussing the matter at hand.
2: So the general theory here is that there is a deep-rooted biological trend within the Finnish people to resort to physical violence over level-headed discussion when facing a conflict.
1: That's what some studies have proposed.
2: This idea is discussed in Vorella's article entitled, The Historical Criminal Statistics of Finland, 1842 to 2015, A Systematic Comparison to Sweden.
1: It's fascinating. All of this does factor into the case if we're analyzing
2: it from all angles. And during Gustafsson's trial, the prosecutor really did lean into this idea of the likelihood of a heated argument turned physical. And I'm
1: sure more theories were whispered around the town.
0: I agree with the prosecutor. I think the facial wounds on Nils Gustafsson were from a fight with Seppo, not from the murderer.
1: And do you agree that Nils tried to cover up the murders by making it look like he had been attacked by some deranged killer?
0: I think it's really possible, yes. He self-inflicted the rest of his injuries.
1: Really? You think an 18-year-old boy took it upon himself to plunge a blade into his own head?
0: Let me just say this. It's not the strangest thing I've ever heard.
1: I just don't know if I can believe it.
0: Come on, let's finish this debate over a drink.
2: And just so we're all on the same page, the prosecution argued that Gustafsson got into a physical fight with Seppo Boisman, then went after his girlfriend, Myla Bjorklund, first hitting her over the head, which killed her, then stabbed her repeatedly, and then did the same to the others to eliminate witnesses to his crime.
1: Yeah, that was basically the prosecution's theory. And that Gustafson then arranged for the crime to look like an outsider had done it.
2: But there was another element in here we can't exclude. There were tracks of blood at the crime scene that matched Gustafson's shoes.
1: Does that point to Gustafson as the killer?
2: It could, but there's another explanation that has been suggested. What's that? That the perpetrator put on Gustafson's shoes and wore them during the killings.
1: Why would the killer have done that?
2: Uh, It's a strange component to the case, I'll admit.
1: If you'll recall from episode one, several of the victims' belongings went permanently missing from the campsite.
2: And some were found nearby. This included Gustafson's shoes. Authorities initially thought they were stolen.
1: What else was missing?
2: Other items of clothing. Their wallets. Seppo Boysman's leather jacket, for example, was never found. And neither were the murder weapons. Is there any information about the murder weapons?
1: There isn't much out there written about the weapons, just that one was probably a blunt object and the other was a sharp one, most
2: likely a knife. You would think that the investigators would make a bigger deal about the missing murder weapons and be more specific about what they were looking for.
1: Right? More specificity on the murder weapons could have helped narrow down the suspects.
2: Remember in the Monster of Florence case we did a while back for this show? The investigators could tell by the wounds of the killer's victims that they were looking for a scuba knife, one commonly used to cut fishing line.
1: I remember that. But sadly, there's little mention of the murder weapons in the
2: Lake Bodum case. Nils Gustafson's trial proved something, however, that the world desperately wanted a perpetrator.
1: Needed a perpetrator more like it.
2: Well, that could explain why investigators went after Gustafson so vehemently.
1: Well, they had run out of suspects in a sense, and no one back in the 1960s thought to suspect the sole survivor of
2: the crime. And although the trial may have seemed promising to some, on October 7th, 2005, Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson was acquitted of all charges.
1: The state of Finland paid him 44,900 euro for his wrongful imprisonment and any mental anguish he experienced because of that imprisonment.
2: That's incredible.
1: In the U.S., we've got an organization called the Innocence Project, which aims to exonerate those who have been wrongly convicted.
2: Their mission statement can be found on the website. It reads, the Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment.
1: To date, the Innocence Project has exonerated 351 people in the U.S. using DNA testing.
2: And that includes 20 that were serving on death row. However, compensation for the wrongfully convicted in the U.S. varies from state to state. Those exonerated could find themselves entitled to hundreds of thousands of dollars, or nothing at all, to make reparations for the time served under a wrongful conviction.
1: Gustafson was never actually convicted, though.
2: He did, however, have to serve time in prison during the trial, which took place over the course of two months.
1: When asked by a reporter how he could know he was innocent if he couldn't remember anything, Gustafson replied, I'm
2: innocent, that's that. He remembered saying goodnight to everyone and going to bed in the tent.
1: The next thing he could recall was waking up in a hospital bed. We'll return to our story in just a moment.
2: And now, back to Unsolved Murders. As of 2017, Nils Gustafson was 75 years old.
1: I just can't believe the ordeal this man had to go through.
2: Right? First in 1960, the day of the triple homicide then 44 years later when he was arrested, and then shortly thereafter when he went to trial. Is there any way he could have committed these murders? It's hard for me to believe, considering he had to overpower three people.
1: Also, if we think about the missing murder weapons, that doesn't really line up with the theory that Gustafson is the killer. How so? Well, think about it. If we run with the prosecution's idea that he killed his girlfriend in a jealous rage and then killed the two others to hide the evidence, he would have then had to leave the site and hide the murder weapons somewhere.
2: And authorities combed the area and never found one or two murder weapons.
1: Right and in the state Gustafson was in when authorities found him. There's no way he could have run off somewhere far away to dispose of the weapons.
2: Well, at least not far enough away from the crime scene that they wouldn't be found.
1: Yes, can you imagine him, after being stabbed and beaten about the face, running around looking for a hiding spot for the weapons?
2: It does seem far-fetched, doesn't it?
1: Well, unless he managed to hide the weapons before he self-inflicted his wounds.
2: Uh, I don't know.
1: It's much more likely that the actual killer left the campsite with the murder weapons in hand and took them far, far away, eventually disposing of them.
2: Or maybe he didn't. Uh, Maybe the killer kept the weapons. Mm.
1: We can't forget that a man was spotted walking away from the crime scene early in
2: the morning of the 5th. Is it possible that this man was not Carl Valdemar Gilstrom or Hans Assmann? Could it have been someone else? An unknown suspect never identified? And if so, what was the motive? It's important to note that no outside DNA was ever found on the tent, only that of the four teenagers. There
1: was, however, another suspect. He's considered a much more minor suspect, but should be
2: mentioned nonetheless. His name was Penty Soininen.
1: He was a criminal responsible for several crimes in the late 1960s.
2: Theft, assault, and robbery.
1: He was arrested, and while he was in prison, confessed to the Lake Boda murders.
2: He claimed he lived near the site of the killings.
1: The police questioned him, but they deemed him a psychopath.
2: And so his confession carried no weight with them.
1: In 1969, Soininen hanged himself at a train station during a prison transport.
2: This was nine years after the murder.
1: Most people disregard Soininen as a suspect and just believe he was crazy.
2: Another person who got caught up in the sweeping mystery of this entire case. It is a sweeping mystery, isn't it?
1: So much so that the Lake Bodom murders have become somewhat of an urban legend around Finland.
2: Well, the story is very reminiscent of the old campfire tale about the man with a hook for a hand. You've heard this one, right, Wendy?
1: Oh, how could I have not? It's one of the most famous urban legends of all time. Young couples go out into the woods to
2: fool around in a parked car on Lover's Lane. And news bulletins come on the radio telling of a serial killer who has just escaped from a nearby mental hospital.
1: And he has a hook for a hand.
2: The girl is terrified and thinks she hears scratching on the car door. But the boy taunts her, saying she's just being paranoid. He wants to keep making out, but the girl insists that they leave. The guy peels out of there.
1: When they arrive back in town, they find a
2: hook is hanging from the car's door handle. It's one of the most terrifying and memorable cautionary tales for teenagers. Sex equals death, basically. Or at least danger. But stop the hanky-panky. And you avoid being torn to shreds by a psychopath with a hook for a hand.
1: The Lake Bodum murders can be seen as a cautionary tale as well. Four teenagers go into the woods one weekend to drink booze and fool around, and three of them end up dead.
2: The other wakes up with horrible facial wounds and no memory of the murders.
1: The deaths at Lake Bodum have also been seen as a precursor to the Friday the 13th movie franchise.
2: In Finland, the Murders have become so famous that a heavy metal group named their band after them.
1: The band Children of Bodum formed in Espo, Finland in 1993.
2: They have made a total of nine albums and are one of Finland's best-selling artists of all time.
1: They've definitely gotten some backlash from the name though.
2: But the band members claim that their name was never supposed to glorify the Murders, but actually pay homage to the three who lost their lives that fateful day.
1: Their most famous album may be considered Follow the Reaper. This one features the song entitled Every Time I Die.
2: Here are some of the lyrics. Another night, another demise. Cadaverous wind blowing cold as ice. I'll let the wind blow out the light because it gets more painful every time I die.
1: That's very intense.
2: Various films have also been made on the subject of the murders.
1: In 2014, a Hungarian film crew made a found-footage horror movie revolving around the Lake Bodom tragedy.
2: The film's page on IMDb states... For the 50th anniversary of the Lake Boda murders, two media students obsessed with the case launch a journalistic investigation. The footage they have left behind only raises new questions.
1: And recently, in 2016, Finnish director Tanelli Mustanen made the film Lake Bodum. When
2: well, the storyline closely follows the real life tale.
1: And while the films don't provide us with concrete answers, they speak to the ever-present need for people in Finland and elsewhere to know who did this.
2: And with that being said, I think it easily comes down to Carl Gilstrom and Hans Asman as the two prime suspects.
1: Right. And of the two, I think Hans is much more likely the perpetrator.
2: I agree, but what is your reasoning?
1: Well, for starters, his strange behavior after the murder.
2: You mean the hospital visit?
1: That, and of course cutting his hair after the suspect was described as having long blonde hair,
2: just like his. We also have the photograph of the mystery man and the composite sketch, which if compared with a picture of Hans, resemble him greatly.
1: And then there's his previous
2: track record. You mean his links to two other unsolved murders?
1: Yes, not to mention that this was a man veiled in secrecy.
2: Due to his KGB affiliations.
1: There's just too much there in my opinion. If it was one or two elements, I might give him a pass.
2: The only question we're left with is why. Why would Hans want to kill those teenagers that night? What did he gain from it? That is the question, isn't it? Could they have had information that jeopardized him or his mission?
1: I don't know. That's what frustrates me. If we think about it, Gilstrom, the angry kiosk man, actually had more of a possible motive than Hans.
2: And what's that?
1: Well, it's a vague emotional motive, if we believe what we read about him.
2: That he was an angry, miserable man. Yeah. But does anger automatically equal murder?
1: No, but maybe he snapped. Maybe years of hatred and unhappiness built up. His mundane job, witnessing happy locals and tourists alike enjoying Lake Bodum. Maybe he lashed out after years of utter despair.
2: Mmm, doesn't fully add up for me.
1: Eh, me either. I'm just saying that there's more of a correlation between him and the plausible motive.
2: And as for Nils Gustafsson, the sole survivor?
1: I honestly don't think he was emotionally or physically capable of such a crime.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: So Hans is our final pick. Listeners, what do you think? Do you agree with us?
2: And if so, what could have been a potential motive for Hans? Weigh in on the ParCast Facebook page or tweet us at ParCast Network. So there you have it. Finland's most
1: famous unsolved triple murder.
2: There's a band named after it.
1: It was a case that included two suicides.
2: And two confessions.
1: An alleged KGB spy?
2: And a former victim turned suspect who was eventually acquitted.
1: The answers are out there, whispered on the wind that flows through the trees and settles on the surface of Lake Bodum.
2: And maybe we're just not listening hard enough.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening.
2: We'll see you next time. If we live
1: until next time,
2: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the PowerCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Malo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by Alphabetical Order, Amber Connor, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez.